Let's pray, and then we will uh, once again open the Word of God together. Lord, many of us have come into the building this morning um, with anxiety about some issue in our lives, perhaps. Um, Others of us have come in having had a good week and feeling peace. Some of us are facing uh, financial difficulties. Others are saddened by events in family or extended family. Lord, we come in today with a variety of uh, events and and things happening in our lives. And, And Lord, you know all about each of us and our situation. You are still on your throne and you are sovereign. You are the God who provides consolation to us and provision to us and mercy to us and your spirit sometimes comes and confronts us and challenges us and steers us away from sin and toward your righteousness. Lord, you are forever at work in our lives and we praise you and we thank you for that. We thank you that in a world that is, uh, seems to be shifting in so many different ways, Lord, that you remain absolutely the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never change, and you have all authority over this earth, over every government, um, over every person. So, Lord, we can lean on you and trust you, and we do that this morning as we open your word. We thank you for your revelation to us. Uh, We would ask you to help us, Lord, to be alert to the things in your word today that you want to teach us and show us. So be with us now, Lord, and be glorified and magnified in this time we have together. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. When I was a kid, um, our family spent many summers out at Calling Lake, Alberta. If you look on a map, it's significantly north of Edmonton, where I grew up. And when we were out at the lake, one of the activities that my mom would recruit us for when we were kids was picking blueberries. Uh, there, there are significant patches of low bush blueberries out there, and mom would want us to go out with a plastic bucket and fill the plastic bucket and then bring it home back to the cabin. Well, as a kid, I can tell you now, I don't know if my mom's listening to this, but as a kid, I hated picking blueberries. <clears throat> I really did. But on one particular day, we were out there picking the berries, and our dog, Dixon, was with us. Dixon was a large collie, so you sort of have a picture of what the dog looked like. Suddenly, Dixon started to... I have a picture of blueberries here that I forgot to switch on. Um, Suddenly, as we're picking the blueberries, Dixon, our dog, started to lie down right in front of us. Every time we would lean down to pick blueberries, he would lie down, sometimes right on top of the blueberry bush itself. Well, it became annoying pretty quickly, and uh, we decided we we would use that as an excuse to end our blueberry picking for the day. It turned out that the very next day, the park rangers captured a black bear that had been roaming around in that exact area where we had been picking berries. So clearly, Our dog had been trying to warn us of danger uh, in his way, trying to get us to move out of the area by laying down on the blueberry bushes. He had known about a real danger 
that we didn't know about. We were blissfully unaware of the potential danger that we were facing. Well, of course, friends, there are countless examples that we can think of, like the one that I just gave, of people being in potential danger, but being unaware of it. The final church of the seven churches in Revelation, the church in Laodicea, is a textbook. Being in danger, not being fully aware of it. The church in Laodicea was a church who were sure... They were sure that everything was okay with them, but the head of the church, Jesus Christ, comes along and he says to them, in essence, not so. The fact is, you are in real peril. Now, one of the things that I think makes the movie Rocky, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but one of the things that I I think makes it such a great movie is that it doesn't end in the expected Hollywood way, right? Where Rocky wins the climactic fight at the end. He loses the fight at the end. And I think that gives the story more realism. It gives the story more resonance with the real world audience than if he had won the fight at the end. Well, in a similar way, The seventh and final church in this section of Revelation is not the happy and bright conclusion to the seven churches that some of us might expect. In fact, the seventh and final church in Laodicea is in the worst condition of all seven of the churches. Jesus has no commendations for this church. And so the letters to the seven churches then, the whole set of letters, end in what we might call a minor key. They end in a minor key. So let's look at the address of Jesus then to the church in Laodicea, beginning at Revelation 3.14. If you have a Bible, we invite you and encourage you to open your Bible and turn there, even though we will have the verses on screen. Revelation 3.14, Jesus is speaking. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Well, if we look at the original Hebrew of Isaiah 65, verse 16, Isaiah 65, verse 16, What we see in the original Hebrew there, in that Old Testament verse, is that Yahweh, God of Israel, literally calls himself the God of Amen in that verse, and he does that twice there. Here in Revelation chapter 3, the Son of God applies this word, Amen, to himself. This is the Son of God speaking here, the words of the Amen. Now, the Hebrew word amen or amen has to do with confirmation, with assurance of something trustworthy, something valid, something verifiable. In identifying himself this way as the amen, Jesus is saying here that he is the assuredly trustworthy God. The assuredly trustworthy God. And... He says of himself here, he is the faithful and true witness. That is, that Jesus perfectly and faithfully and truthfully 
witnesses the Father or reveals the Father and the heart of the Father. He is the faithful and true witness. Third, Jesus identifies himself, notice, as the arche in Greek, the beginning of God's creation. That is to say, and here we have to have Colossians 1.18 working in parallel with our interpretation. This is to say that Jesus is the start of the new creation that was birthed in his resurrection. Colossians 1.18 calls the resurrected Jesus the arche, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning, the arche, the firstborn from the dead. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, friends, God has officially kicked off and begun his new creation. Amen? We live in the overlap of the ages, the old age and the new age. We're in the overlap section. One day the old age is going to disappear, and the new age, the new creation, is going to come in and take prominence, and we will be with him forever in a physical, material earth enjoying him forever, amen, in our resurrected bodies, our glorified bodies. That wasn't in my notes, but I just felt like preaching. So the Jesus who is addressing his church in Laodicea is the trustworthy amen, we need to see. He is the one whose revelation of the Father is perfect and faithful. He's the faithful and true witness. And by his resurrection, he is the firstborn, the beginning of God's new creation. This high and exalted Jesus, and I hope we see him here this way, this high and exalted Jesus says to his church in verse 15, I know your works. Listen very carefully to what he says. You are, what? Neither cold nor hot. Would that you were, what? Either, 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 same word, either cold or hot. Now here, in order to understand what Jesus is saying in this verse, it's imperative for us to understand a few things about the geographical area that surrounded Laodicea. First of all, here's what we need to point out, that the city of Laodicea was an affluent place. Uh, Lots of material wealth in this town. The city was situated in the middle of intersecting trade routes, and it was also the banking and financial center of the entire area. Laodicea also boasted a medical school that had a specialty in ophthalmology, or eye health. And the city was also a fashion hub. Uh, There was a market that had been created there for special black fabrics that had been created from the wool of specially bred black sheep. But for all of its affluence, for all of its material prosperity, Laodicea had a real problem maintaining a supply of drinkable water. They had no immediate source of fresh water. The water that they had in Laodicea had to be piped in through an aqueduct system. 
Six miles north, there's a map, six miles north of Laodicea was the city of Hierapolis, which was famous, the city of Hierapolis was, for its hot springs, for its hot springs. The hot mineral waters of Hierapolis were sought after for their medicinal qualities. And then 10 or 11 miles to the southeast of Laodicea was the city of Colossae. And in Colossae, they had access to beautiful, fast-flowing, cold water that cascaded down to them from Mount Cadmus. Laodicea piped water in from both the hot springs in Hierapolis, six miles north of them, and from the cold stream of Colossae, 10 or 11 miles to the southeast. But by the time that the water reached Laodicea, it was neither cold nor hot anymore. It was lukewarm. And in the case of the water that came from Hierapolis, it was full of concentrated minerals, full of calcium carbonate, in fact. And this made the water revolting and unsafe for drinking. If you drank that water, it would make you sick. When Jesus says in our verse that the church of Laodicea was neither cold nor hot and that he wishes that they were one or the other, he is alluding to that situation of the water in Laodicea and everybody in that church, as they heard him say this, would make that connection. Now, the hot water, I don't know if any of you have had opportunity this summer to go somewhere to where hot springs are. The hot water of Hierapolis was appreciated for its medicinal effects. If you had aches and pains and you went into those hot springs in Hierapolis, it would be kind of like a soothing ancient jacuzzi of sorts. And the cold water of Colossae was refreshing. It was pure. It was invigorating. Uh, if you were athletically inclined, you could run up uh, part of Mount Cadmus there, uh, work up a sweat, and then come down and take a refreshing drink from that cold, crystal clear water that flowed down. Notice very carefully, friends, in our verse that Jesus does not say, he does not say, I want you to be hot and not cold. He doesn't say that. What he says here is that he wishes the church of Laodicea would be what? Either. Either. Cold or hot. Either. The clear implication is that in the thinking of Jesus Christ, being cold can be a good thing. And being hot can also be a good thing. Would that you were either cold or hot. A cold church, in the sense that Jesus desires here, is a church that is like the water of Colossae. It is a church that is spiritually refreshing to people, spiritually invigorating like a cold glass of water on a hot summer day, or like a cold shower sometimes we need that will shock us, that will uh, resuscitate us, that will bring us from a, a place of sleepiness to life. A hot church, in the way that Jesus wants here, is a church that is a healing 
soothing kind of a place, kind of a church. A church that works the pains out, we could say, of spiritually fatigued muscles. A hot church is a church that is marked by warmth, by empathy, that has a desire to help the hurting with the gospel, a sort of spiritual jacuzzi. But the church in Laodicea was neither cold nor hot. Verse 16, so, says Jesus to his church, because you are, what? Lukewarm as a church. Because you are lukewarm like the repugnant water that flows through the aqueducts of your city, because you are neither hot nor cold, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth just like a resident of Laodicea would spit out the nauseous, undrinkable water that ended up in the city after it had flowed six miles from Hierapolis, Jesus would spit out his church that was neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm because it was making him sick. And we get a detailed picture of what the lukewarm condition looked like in the Laodicean church as we travel into verse 17. Notice how it's connected to verse 16. So what is it that was so repugnant to Jesus, making him sick? Well, he paints the picture of their lukewarmness now. He says, for, so directly connected to verse 16, for, you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing. Okay? So in a word, affluence was plaguing the spiritual life of this church. Wealth was the taproot of a spiritual torpor and a lukewarmness in this church. A spiritual comatoseness had descended on this church in this city with all of its ancient Lamborghinis and Gucci purses and Rolexes and overflowing bank accounts. As James Hamilton puts it, who taught me down at Southern in his commentary on Revelation, he says, their abundant physical and economic resources had dulled their sense of need for God and the gospel. Now let's come right to where we live. When compared to the majority of the present world, Canada ranks high on the list of affluence. We live in one of the wealthiest nations on the face of the earth. We are immersed in a nation of material prosperity and resources of all kinds. And therefore, friends, it would be very wise for me and for you, for us, to listen especially intently here to the head of the church and his word to the affluent church. You and I can so very easily get into a very spiritually unhealthy pattern 
where we simply rely on the trappings of our culture. We can so very easily fall into complacency as we live in this sea of affluence that is called Canada. Jesus says to his church, you say, here's what you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now, in particular, when we were at our first church in Alberta, in the height of the, the, you know, the oil, I think a barrel of oil is like $134, just like climbing every day, and it's just money flowing through that province, and, and we're pastoring in a church there, and, and it, there were times when it just became hard to share the gospel with people. You had 22-year-olds working in the oil fields with a, you know, 6,000 square foot house, brand new truck, sea that you know, I've got all I need, I need nothing. And it became hard. Jesus is speaking to a church that is planted in an affluent area. And then Jesus gives his church, after he says what they say, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, need nothing, he gives them now their blueberry bush moment. Okay, I was telling you earlier about how my dog had an awareness of the danger that we were so blissfully unaware of, which caused him to come and lie down on the bushes as we were trying to pick. Well, Jesus now, he wants to bring awareness of the actual situation of this church. He wants to open their eyes to their actual reality that they are blissfully unaware of. And what he does now is he lays out for his church their actual position. Okay, from his divine perspective, which is perfect, right? Their actual condition. Jesus says, look, listen to what he says. He says, you don't realize. Now notice that. That day in the blueberry patch, we had not realized the danger that we were in. Jesus talks of the church in Laodicea not realizing. They're blissfully unaware that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This church had been blissfully unaware of their actual identity. Jesus had expressed his own identity in verse 17. The Amen a faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, and now he expresses the true identity of his church in Laodicea. Though they think everything is okay with them, it most certainly is not. They are duping themselves. They are deceiving themselves. Did you know it's easy to deceive yourself? I know it's been true in my own life. And Jesus confirms that in actual fact, now they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I wonder, church, as we sit here today, do we have a sober, a sober grasp of our reality? Maybe we do. Do we? Do we have a sober grasp of our, of our actual situation before the, the Lord? You know, as Daryl Johnson puts this, Quote, he says, it is the nature, listen, it is the nature of lukewarmness to be unaware that you are lukewarm. Or as Grant Osborne has put it, this church in Laodicea had, quote, 
succumbed to their own affluent lifestyle and they didn't even know it. Do we have an awareness of our true condition before God? And then does that awareness drive us to Him? That's the question. Now, I want us to zero in here on just two of the descriptive words that Jesus gives here for his church, just two of them. Notice those two words here, poor and blind. The church in Laodicea was poor and blind. Now, in being poor, they were the mirror opposite of the church in Smyrna. Do you remember the church in Smyrna that we looked at earlier in this series? When Jesus had been talking to the church in Smyrna, he'd said this to them, I know your poverty but you are rich. In other words, though the church in Smyrna had been materially very poor, not a lot of financial resources, they were rich in the gospel, rich in Jesus Christ. But, but in Laodicea, we have the mere opposite of that. The church in Laodicea was materially rich, Yes, they were very well off, but now Jesus declares the reality of their spiritual life (laughs) because that's what Jesus is so interested in in us, right? He doesn't care how many zeros that there there are at the end of our bank account. Well, he does care. He cares how we're stewarding it if he's given us that much. But what he cares about is our spiritual condition, and he now declares that reality to them of their spiritual life. They are dirt poor, in a spiritual sense, for all of their material affluence. You know, it's such a good thing when we come to that point where we recognize how poor we actually are. Amen? And then notice that term blind. The church was blind. What does it mean to be blind? Well, you're unable to see. In a city that prided itself on its ophthalmological, that's a hard word to say, research, Um, boasted of its production of a certain kind of Phrygian eye powder that was very sought after and popular. For all of that, the church was spiritually blind. They were unable to see clearly. They had not been depending on the one who can grant spiritual sight, Jesus Christ. They had been depending far too much on their material wealth and all of their material comforts, and hence they were blind to reality. Friends, the warning to us from our Lord in this verse is that we can be blissfully unaware of our true condition before him. We can rely on ourselves and we can rely on our wealth so much to such a degree that we become lulled into a complacency, lulled into a spiritual lethargy that makes us unaware of our condition before him. May we hear his word and heed his word this morning. May the spirit break through for all of us our blissful unawareness. And may we hear and heed his counsel that continues now in verse 18. So after he identifies the true condition of this church, Jesus counsels them on what they must do, he says. Now listen to this, friends. There's good gospel news here. He says, I counsel you. It's the only time he says that in all seven letters. I counsel you, my poor 
spiritually impoverished church by, notice the word, he just called them poor, right? Buy from me gold. They're poor. Buy from me gold refined by fire. That is, church, when you come to the place that you humbly see now your true condition, your poor, pitiable condition before God, your blindness, then, says Jesus, you're in a position to make the purchase that you need to make. Once you come to the grips, come to grips with the, with the fact that you are in no position to pay me anything, then I want you to buy some things from me. <laughs> you see this? We think here of Isaiah 55 verse 1, where God beckons those with no money no money to come buy and eat to buy wine and milk without money he says and without price so this is a very unconventional sort of buying here isn't it those who are bankrupt are invited to come and buy having no money god's store friends is open to those with no ability to pay amen it's open to those with no ability. He provides lavishly to paupers by his grace. And in our verse, Jesus lays out now the shopping list to the spiritually bankrupt Laodiceans. He wants three things to be on their shopping list. He says, come with your inability to pay and buy gold refined by fire. That's the first thing. And he wants them to buy that, notice, so that you may be what? Rich. The Laodiceans could go out in their city with all their material wealth and they could buy physical gold. But that's not the kind of gold that Jesus wants them to buy here. He wants them to take hold of the spiritual gold, the spiritual richness that only he can give. He wants them to have gold that is never going to fade for all eternity, never decay. This is the kind of bling that we need. I'm probably dating myself by using that word even, but there it is. And that, so that's the first thing. The second thing on this shopping list of Jesus is, notice, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness, he's just called them naked spiritually, the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Now again, the city of Laodicea was known for the fashionable and very sought after black garments that it produced that were made of the black wool of specially bred sheep. But Jesus says here, it's not the black fabrics that I want you to wear here. Buy from me white garments and wear those. Now in ancient times, newly baptized people were clothed in white garments to signify their cleansing, to signify their commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus has already called this church naked at the end of verse 17, and now he says here that the, their spiritual nakedness needs to be covered with the only garments that they need, that only he can provide, white garments of cleansing and of purity. It's 
the second thing. And then the third and final item on the shopping list, along with the gold and the white garments, is eye ointment. Jesus says, buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that what? So that you may see. Jesus has observed their spiritual blindness in verse 17, and now he invites them in the midst of this ophthalmological specialty city, he invites them to come and take his eye salve, the eye salve that sits on the shelf of his cosmic store, and to take it in order that they may anoint their eyes so that they might see. What kind of seeing had they had up to this point? They had been unable to see. Their seeing had been a myopic sight of their own supposed safety in their affluence. That's what they'd been seeing. Their seeing up to this point is that they needed nothing. That's what they saw. But Jesus wants them to open their eyes to actual reality. He wants them and he wants us, friends, to see that we are, in fact, before him, we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked in great, desperate need of what he can give. Amen? And he wants us to take hold of what he's selling to us for no money so that we would be utterly and totally dependent on him. Are you dependent totally and utterly on him in your life? What have we noticed in this 18th verse? We've noticed that what we need has to come from the storehouse of Jesus Christ. It has to come from him. It's, here's a question. Is our spiritual condition, just, just think of this, is our spiritual condition going to be addressed? Is it going to be cured by our own earthbound resources? By the black woolen Louis Vuitton fashions of Laodicea. Is that, is that how our spiritual condition is going to be addressed and cured? Is it going to be addressed and cured by scientific advances? Like the ones they had in the College of Laodicea? Is our true condition before Almighty God going to be addressed and remedied by the amount of precious metals that we can amass in our lifetime? Most certainly not. My friend, you need to come and I need to come in our spiritual poverty, in our blindness and in our nakedness. We need to come to Jesus Christ who invites us to come without money to take his divine resources that are the only thing, you need to listen, the only thing that will cure the sin sickness that plagues each and every one of us. We need to trust the crucified, risen Jesus Christ, the soon coming Lord, for the forgiveness that he has worked out at the cross. We need Jesus. Verse 19 now, after giving the church this rather stern word in this letter so far, Jesus says, notice what he says, those whom I love, he loves you, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent, turn. 
Now, this is coming straight from Proverbs 3, verse 12. The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights, right? A good father is going to exercise discipline on his wayward-leaning son. And this is what God does with us because he loves us. Jesus loved the church in Laodicea enough. He loved Snowden Baptist Church enough to reprove and to discipline us where necessary like a good loving father does with his children. And that love in the form of discipline is meant to lead us what? To repentance. It's meant to lead us to turn from our folly because he loves us. Verse 20. Now, perhaps I think some, many of us know this rather famous verse. Some of us have seen the painting that accompanies this verse. Jesus says here, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, are you hearing his voice this morning? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and oh, we're going to sit down together and eat and eat with him, and he with me. Now, oftentimes, right, this, this verse has been employed for evangelistic purposes. Uh, we might say to an unbelieving friend, well, Jesus stands at the door of your heart, and he's knocking to come in, and if you let him in, he promises to feast with you. But what I want us to notice very carefully in this context of, of this letter, of this verse in this particular place in Scripture, notice very carefully uh, that the words of Jesus in this verse are not addressed in this context to unbelievers. Rather, his words are addressed to the church in Laodicea. And the church is made up of believers. Jesus is talking in this verse to his church. And he's saying to his church, to his bride, to us, he's saying that he's waiting as the bridegroom outside the door. There's a definite allusion in this verse to the Old Testament Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2. In that verse in the Song of Solomon, we have the following words. I'll read it to you. A sound. My beloved is knocking Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Now what's happening in that verse is that the husband is knocking on the door of his wife's bedchamber. The husband wants to enter the chamber and he wants their relationship to flourish and to continue unimpeded. Well, our bridegroom is who? Jesus Christ, and he wants unimpeded, continuing relationship with his bride. That's us, his church. He wants unimpeded fellowship with us. He wants to come in and eat with us. That's fellowship talk. And so, my friends, I wonder, are we hearing his voice, church? Are we turning the door handle to let him in? Now, of course, if Jesus wanted to, he could simply kick the door in and gain entry, correct? 
But as James Hamilton puts it, when Jesus wants in, he can certainly get in, but here he invites his church to open the door to him because he's gracious. And so are you and I letting Jesus Christ in? Daryl Johnson encourages us this way, and I think this is great. He says, let him in, church, at the office. Let him be the amen and the arche, the beginning of the new creation, in your workplace. Let him in. And let him in, Johnson says, in the room called family. And let him in in the room called sexuality. And let him in in the room called money. And let him in in the rooms called past and future. And let him in in the rooms called dreams and fears. And let him in in the rooms called anger and depression and wounded. Let him in. And I would add to what Johnson has said there by saying this, that when you do let him in, prepare, prepare in your hunger for a sumptuous feast. Amen? He's coming in to eat with you. Verse 21, I want you to listen to the promise of our king here. <laughs> this just makes me so excited. The one who conquers, I will grant him or her to sit with me on my throne. Can you imagine? Can you imagine sitting with Jesus Christ on his throne? The cosmic throne in the headquarters over all the universe. Now, what an amazingly cool leader, Jesus Christ. He's cool, right? Like, look, look at this. He's not afraid to share his seat of authority. That's cool. He's just so utterly secure in his authority and his rulership that he doesn't mind sharing his throne <laughs> with his church. I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus conquered by doing what? By dying on the cross. That's how he conquered what looked like a great defeat on earth, if you would have been standing there that day, what looked like a great defeat turned out to be God's conquering victory, the means of forgiveness for sinners like you and I. Jesus rose from the dead, and Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, there to sit on the throne with kingly, cosmic warrior authority. And then verse 22, here's our final verse of this seventh letter, the final verse of all the letters to the seven churches. And, and by now we know this verse well, don't we? Let's read it together. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the final words that are left ringing in our ears as this seven-letter section comes to a close, this, the final word is to hear <laughs> the voice of the Holy Spirit of the living God. Now, as we work toward a close, let's return to the very beginning. So, my faithful dog, uh, that's not my dog, uh, faithful dog in the blueberry patch warning us of the danger that we were not aware of. The end of that story is, and here's where the picture comes in, 
the rangers trapped the bear in a cage and they attached that cage to a helicopter and the bear was then flown about probably about 100 kilometers north into the bushes and it was let out there. And so the danger, friends, was removed effectively from the area. In the letter to the Laodiceans, and for that matter, in most of the seven letters to the churches, Jesus issues warnings to his churches, to his church. Warnings of danger. And he does this so that the church will take action now, so that the danger will be removed. And the dangers that he warns about in these letters are so profoundly contemporary in 2021, right? Whether it's a warning about falling asleep spiritually in a sea of affluence, as it was in Laodicea, or a warning about losing the love we had at first because of theological controversy and external pressures, as it was in Ephesus, or if it's a warning about falling prey to compromise because of cultural pressures, like it was in Pergamum. There's a fly up here who loves the Word of God. He's just hovering here. <laughs> well, whatever the warning, Jesus in His grace gives all of these warnings so that we as His church will take immediate action and be spared calamity, be spared heartache. He's gracious toward us. And with these warning, he, with, with the warnings, He prescribes so many courses of action, doesn't He, in these letters sprinkled throughout so, for example, he commands us to repent, to remember, to do. He commands us to be faithful unto death in these letters, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he commands us to hold fast what we have. And he says to us, strengthen what remains. And he commands us to wake up. And he invites us to buy gold and white garments and eye salve from him. And in the midst of it all, then we're done. In these seven letters, our head and our Lord, our King, commends us several times for the things that please Him. And He gives us an absolutely breathtaking vision of His glory. So that worshipfully and joyfully, we would obey Him. Our head, our king, the Lord of this church, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. He is the first and last who died and came to life. He is the one with the sharp two-edged sword. He has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. He has the seven spirits of God. He is the Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Jesus is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And I pray with all earnestness and with all sincerity that in these weeks, we have caught sight of his glory, that we have listened to his voice, and that we will be doers of his word. Amen? Let's pray together. 
Oh, Father in heaven, you are better to us than we deserve. You are faithful when we have been faithless. You are so merciful to us, Lord, to give us your word, your revelation, your steering column for our lives. And Lord God, I pray for your church that we have had ears to hear and that there would be movement made in terms of doing your word within our lives and within this church. Lord, if there are areas that we have failed you, we ask your forgiveness. We repent of it and we turn from it and we follow you. Thank you for being our head, our king, our Lord, our God. Walk with us closely this week, I pray in Jesus' name.